What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with Lee Jin. Uh, Lee, how's it going? Good. It's nice to be here again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice to have you. I think you were last on the show in February of this year. It's about 10 months ago. And I think I introduced you as the patron saint of the passion economy back then. So the passion economy, very similar to the creator economy. It's a sort of explosion of individuals moving onto the internet and making a living online by creating things, whether it's YouTube videos or tweets or blog posts or courses. But since then, you've had a lot of stuff going on. You've raised a lot of money. You've been investing in more money than ever. Uh, you even had the New York Times do a really cool sort of huge profile on you. And they called you the investor guru for online creators. So maybe that's your, your new title. What was that experience They like? also called me the it girl in venture capital, which which people have really glommed onto hilariously. The it girl in venture capital. It's, it's a lot. It felt nerve wracking <laughs> and exciting. It's one of those moments that I think you never even allow yourself to envision can happen because it's just so far-fetched and feels like, you know, how many people really get the privilege of being profiled in such a international forum like that. But it was an awesome experience. I did it remotely. I was calling in from Greece, Athens at the time. Taylor Lorenz wrote it up. She is an amazing reporter who I've learned so much from over the past few years. I think she's really on the cutting edge of writing a lot about the topics that I care about, but from a news angle. And so it was just really, really such an honor and a privilege to be written about by her. What is that process like of being profiled by like a huge newspaper? Is that like, is it like an arduous thing or is it like super quick, efficient, like a podcast recording? Well, it is pretty extensive behind the scenes. A lot of it I did not even see because essentially what happened was I had, you know, a normal conversation kind of like this with her. But then after that, she contacted and talked to a lot of people who had interacted with me or worked with me over many years. It was It's kind of like getting a new job. And then um, your employer is like, by the way, I'm just going to call up some people that we know. And you're like, okay, but this is like on a next level. It's like literally everyone. And it was so funny because I was like, oh gosh, who is she talking to? <laughs> what do they think about me? I hope they say good things. I hope they say good things. I hope they don't remember that time that I like left my dishes in the sink in the office <laughs> and hate me for that. No, but Taylor, yeah, she, I think she knows like half of all of my friends now because she talked to everyone and she was like, everyone just said the nicest things about you. Yeah. It was a pretty glowing article. It was definitely like I read through it and it was like 100% positive as far as I could tell. But then it's the New York Times, so you get some like comments. And I was looking at some of the reader comments. And there's like various degrees of, of pessimism, especially against tech in general, when you get to like sort of like the peanut gallery commenting. And one of the comments stood out to me. Uh, this person, their name is Anders, I think. Hard for me to applaud anything that perpetuates this tech-driven consumerism cycle we currently seem to be spiraling into. I hope for humanity's sake, we all wake up from our YouTube and Instagram hypnosis soon. Did you see that comment? I didn't because I usually try not to, um, like it's everywhere, like on Twitter, on comments, like responses to my Substack newsletter, like the, the tech lash is very real and I don't go through all of them in detail because a lot of them are kind of not substantive and, and so I, I try to just focus my energy on more constructive uses, but I do acknowledge it's out there. I mean, if we look back in history for every single wave of technology, there's been people who have been vehemently against it. Like there's a podcast that I really love called Pessimist Archive, which chronicles the tech clash throughout history. It didn't used to be tech clash with the social media platforms. It used to be tech clash against like telegrams. There was a tech clash against telegrams because it was like, well, why, why is this thing being invented? Now I need to be 
plugged in and like responsive to my customers <laughs> over the weekend or like they can contact me whenever they want. Um, there was tech lash against bicycles being invented. It was unnatural for men to go that fast or <laughs> against the subway because why would you want to go underground if you're still alive? Like it's unnatural for people to be underneath the ground. And like, why would we invent a mode of transport that had you digging up the soil? So like with every wave of technology throughout history, there's been people pushing back because I think the root of it is like change is really uncomfortable and technology requires us to change the way that we live and move throughout our lives. And that can feel threatening and different and force us to adapt our ways but I think it's a perennial thing. And if history has taught us any lessons, it's that there will always be resistance against change. But overall, like technology, I think it's inarguable that technology has raised the quality of life for all of humanity since we started making tools as a species. I kind of feel the exact same way that you do. Like we've played this game before. It's sort of on repeat. You know, if you're a student of history, it's kind of like played out to resist whatever new technology comes about that's scary and threatening because in another generation, it'll just be mundane and, and sort of how things have always been. And if humanity can do anything, it's adapt to new environments and, and whatnot. But I don't know. Not everybody shares this opinion. And I wonder, like, like, what do you think it is about you that makes you more optimistic about these kinds of things? And, you know, why aren't you like part of the tech lash? You know, it's funny that you say that word because optimism, because I just got a, a reply to my latest newsletter that I just sent out two hours ago, uh, where a reader said, I wish I could be as optimistic as you, but you're wrong for all of these reasons. <laughs> I love um, the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think optimism is traumatic experiences and coming through them. Also, the fact that I grew up between cultures helps a lot. Because a lot of the technologies that we commonly take for granted and that get vilified here, like social media platforms, I see the silver linings of them all the time because my dad, my paternal grandparents, they're from like super rural China, like 13 hour train ride plus like car ride plus tractor plus walking. <laughs> plus <laughs> kind <tractor>. of Wow. <laughs> Like the last part of it, there is no road, so you have to walk through the rice paddies. So they're from like that kind of rural environment. And when I was younger, there was just no way to communicate with them. Like you had to send a letter that probably took like a month to get there or three months from the U.S. And then telephone poles got in got installed there only when I was like 11 or 12 years old. And I remember that moment clearly when I could finally pick up the phone and call my grandmother. And then later on, they got cell service and now everyone has a smartphone. And the fact that like you can hold up your smartphone and talk to them face to face now using the social platforms that are free for all of their users, like that's a magical moment that I feel like we don't acknowledge and recognize as often as we should. Like I, I remember them like telling my mother like, it's crazy that we can still talk to you after all these years from this distance. Like, and I just thought like, wow, there are benefits to social media. Yeah. It made so many good points there, which I think we're sort of recapping. One of them is I think that kind of highlighting the point that it's like easy to take these things for granted. You know, like we have like, okay, people like lives being empowered by technology, et cetera. And it's easy to sort of ignore those and look at all the bad, but like, when you appreciate like the simple things, like being able to communicate with your family, like that's pretty revolutionary and life changing. And it's easy to say technology is bad if we just ignore all of the good. But there's a lot of good that it does. And the other thing I think is that, you know, on one hand, optimism can come from like unique personal experience, surviving difficult or even traumatic things, and then seeing that life can be okay, I think is a good sort of proof on a personal level that like there's a reason for optimism. But also you can like logically make the case for optimism if you're a student of history and you look back on things and you see like there's been so many different things that people over the decades have been afraid of that have seemed like existential threats that actually you know despite maybe being kind of dangerous like we adapted or we worked through because generally speaking people want things to be better <laughs> and whenever something threatening comes about people go to work trying to fix the problems and make things better so i think there's a great logical case too you're sort of highlighting for optimism do you feel like the tech lash has been exacerbated and like, how do we ever mitigate that, especially in an era 
of social media and people right saying I think thanks for engagement I think that it peaked in 2020. I think that there was a lot more written about it back then. But the fact of the matter is like technology is sort of entrenched. It's sort of just here. I think as much as people crave novelty, it gets sort of played out to like be like, you know, the 50,000th newspaper article about why Instagram is bad <laughs> and how it's ruining us, you know, and it's like, well, actually, like we're still kind of okay. And humanity is still sort of working well. And people seem to be more or less surviving. Like we've even adapted to like a global worldwide pandemic. You know, it's not great. There's negatives, but like we seem to be able to adapt. And so I do think that like there will always be voices out there that are sort of sounding the alarm are, you know, complaining for lack of a better word. But I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's fine. And I don't think that it's like overwhelming and it's going to lead to any major changes. I just think people will sound the alarm and sort of complain and like, <laughs> you know, that'll just be there. It'll be the, the sort of persistent undercurrent until like humanity's just used to this stuff and we'll just complain about new things. I'm already seeing the cycle happen again where there's now this like burgeoning nostalgia for the last wave of internet technology. Like with crypto, I'm seeing people now being like, actually, maybe Facebook and Google aren't that bad. Maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's not that bad that they have all of our data. Like I trust them. And like if if we're going to trust anyone with our data, like it's probably Google. So maybe we should just go back to that. <laughs> every it's so boring but like every situation is nuanced you know there's always ups and downs there's always a cost benefit analysis and so uh, i'm not shocked to see those opinions and i spent a lot of time in hacker news where there's like it's always sort of like curmudgeonly nostalgic things were better the way before yes and so there's a lot yes. of that there too like the i hate this it's so funny stuff, how that has become the hacker news community it's weird right because it's supposed to be sort of a technologically like forward-looking place and yet I think no. I think every group is susceptible to sort of being curmudgeonly. You know, like that's kind of maybe the yes. condition in a way. I think we need to resist being curmudgeonly. That is like a lifelong resolution for everyone. I agree. Stay young. Stay hungry. I recently had like a sort of deep dive into like Web3 because I was also kind of like, ah, what is this stuff? I'm sort of resisting. It seems like a flash in the pan. And then like earlier this year, I'm like, you know what? Like I should, <laughs> this is not the way to be. This is not how I want to be. Like I should deep dive and learn. And it's been super fascinating. And I've learned a ton. At the very least, it's very intellectually engaging and fun. And so I agree with you. It's something like to strive for. Yes. Yes. Let's let's talk about some of this, this future stuff. I wrote down like four or five topics we can talk about. We can talk about DAOs. We can talk about social tokens and Web3. Maybe a good place to start is sort of a more broad topic which is this concept that you've been tweeting about a lot, which is creators sort of taking back ownership from platforms. And mm -hmm. so I think the context here is that like a lot of the internet, sort of web two, so to speak, has been these huge platforms like Spotify or Twitter, creating sort of a place where creators can come in and produce content. But ultimately the vast majority of like the capital that's like, you know, changing hands or sort of like, I guess the reward for that content ends up enriching and empowering the creators of the platform rather than the creators creating that content. Yes. And this is not like ideal. It's like, it's a little bit dystopian in a way. What are your, what are your thoughts on this? Is this like a fixable problem? It's really interesting because in the last 10 months that has elapsed since the last time that I was on this show, a lot has shifted on my side as well, professionally and personally just in terms of my focus area and where I'm investing both my time as well as dollars. Yeah. To address like the future of online work. So, you tweeted, you tweeted like the biggest opportunity of our time is to reconfigure the relationship between capital and labor. Yes. So I'll start with the founding thesis of my firm that I'd started last summer, Atelier Ventures and trace it to where I am now. Okay. So, when I left A16Z, it was because I became very passionate about the thesis of the passion economy. How do we leverage online platforms and tools to give everyone the opportunity to start their own businesses on the internet, to earn income in whatever way they wanted, to offer up whatever product or service or knowledge or skill that they had and connect with customers all over the world? That was the vision that I saw and the shift that I saw that was possible through internet-enabled work, and I wanted to be really on the forefront of that movement. And so the founding thesis of Atelier Ventures was we should give everyone the ability to become a capital owner such that they can call the shots and be in control of their destiny and do work on their own terms, control their customer relationships, determine how they want to monetize their price points, et cetera, et cetera, like empower them to be entrepreneurs, essentially. 
And that was very much a reaction to what I had seen play out in the marketplace and platform world um, in the four years prior to that that I was investing, which was that platforms mediated that relationship with end customers. Platforms dictated the prices that they were paid out. They held all of the data, et cetera. And so like, even though the promise was to be your own boss on a lot of these gig platforms, that wasn't actually the case. These workers were very much commodified. And so my thesis was, it's possible to build a new generation of tools and platforms that are much more friendly to online workers and actually enable them to own capital. And throughout the course of investing, what I realized was by investing in these centralized companies and businesses that were mostly owned by investors like myself and by early employees, at some point in time, in order to be worth anything and to generate a churn, these companies needed to extract value from the users who were using them. And they could extract value at terms they thought were fair, like through a take rate that they thought was low, but there was still going to be pushback from the participants on the platform over how that was determined and was that really fair. And so that extractive element that a platform needed to converge on, which Chris Dixon has wrote about in his piece, Why Decentralization Matters, with the platform S-curve and how as they get more participants, they shift from cooperation to extraction. I felt like that was this inevitability that presented a tension in what I was trying to invest in and, and the impact right. that I wanted to see in the world. So just to give listeners like an example of this, you're talking about something like Facebook in the early days saying, hey, creators, come build on our platform. And then later on, like locking down your followers and saying you need to pay to reach these followers. Or Twitter saying like, hey, developers, come build on our API. And then cutting off their API and killing a bunch of apps and just buying the ones that they cared about. Like eventually they start competing with the people that they sort of pretended to cooperate with in the early days. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. That's that's precisely the dynamic. And I thought, how how do I resolve this tension? Like how 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 do I actually fund the next generation of products and services that are going to be much more creator friendly and not just eventually have to compete and extract from them? And I ended up going down the crypto rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> And now I'm a Web3 investor because dun, dun, dun. what I realized <laughs> what I realized is that the toolkit that is offered by crypto in this innovation of a token actually allows you to transfer and distribute value to all of the participants in a network much more effectively than equity was ever able to do and thereby enabling you to remove the distinction between a shareholder versus all of the stakeholders out there and make them one and the same. And so a crypto network that decentralizes can do can can distribute tokens to their community and that community can be users, it can be creators, it can be people who are hyping you up on Twitter or whatever, like anyone who contributes value in any way can become a token holder and the network can choose to drive value to those tokens and confer rights, both economic rights and governance rights, such that everyone becomes a shareholder in that business. Right. And so that was the strong form of the thesis of how do we make everyone a capital owner? So an example of that might be a social network. I think it used to be called BitCloud. It's not called DSO. But they had like a token that sort of represented their social network. And the early sort of institutional investors weren't like signing, you know, special term sheets where they got access to preferred shares or something. They're just buying the tokens like any human being could do. Let me just buy this token. Any person could do that. And essentially, you're not like at any elevated status as an early investor. You're doing the exact same thing as everybody else. And that's kind of revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think there's a, a little bit of controversy with that particular example because the initial investors did get to access the token at a lower price than right. later retail investors. But the general idea is that is is like eventually the company exits the community or mm -hmm. maybe is community owned from day one via the token. Right. And as an investor, you're investing in the same asset that is eventually going to be owned by all of the users and creators on the platform as well. Right. And so that sort of aligns incentives because everybody's sort of participating in the same way. There's a question though, like isn't access still like 
sort of power sort of disproportionately favor just like the earliest people or the biggest investors. Like ultimately, if you own 50% of the tokens in any of these things, like you still sort of control things in the same way as if you're on the board of, you know, a traditional startup. So like, where does the, where does the change come in that's so revolutionary? Yeah. So ultimately, I think these things aren't black or white. When I outline the thesis of giving users ownership of these platforms, a lot of the reaction that I'll hear from people is like, but where does that put you as a VC? Like, what are right. you investing in then? How do you get a return? And the truth is that we we are investing um, in these networks as well. And we do, you know, we need to make a return. And so the idea is that at a later point, like what we invested in will be worth more than right. what we invested in initially, hopefully. Ideally. Yes, ideally. And that means the network grows and it attracts more users and and there's like the token price appreciates, et cetera. But if you look at the substantive difference between the old style model of funding a startup through equity all the way through to IPO versus one of these decentralized networks, what looks really different is the percentage of ownership that goes to VCs versus goes to the community. Like in a traditional company startup that is funded via equity, selling equity, they'll probably raise many, many rounds of venture financing to the point where probably by the time it IPOs, it's mostly owned by investors, by outside investors. And the team owns, I don't know, like a third of the company or something. And then it IPOs. And that's when all of the retail investors can finally get access to this company that is now probably worth already a lot. And that at that point, like the venture investors exit and the retail investors kind of pay what they're exiting to. Versus in a decentralized network, usually if it starts as a cent centralized company before doing a token distribution, they'll probably raise like one or two rounds of capital maximum. And then investors will own 15% of the business or so. And then the team will own, let's say, 10 to 15% of the business as well. And the remainder of it goes to the community. Cool. And so a much okay. larger portion of the token network goes to the community much earlier, enabling people to benefit from the price appreciation of the token thereafter from a much earlier stage. And then there's the added part, which is that a lot of people don't even need to buy the token with their own capital. They can earn it through doing various actions that the network dictates are valuable. Right. So you can get on the ground floor even if you don't really have any money by exactly. like working or posting or tweeting or whatever the product sort of incentivizes you to do. Yes, cool. that's right. This is so fascinating. So essentially as a VC, like what you're kind of basically saying is like, hey, in this new future world, it's like technically not as good as the past world was for VCs. You know, we're not going to take home the lion's share of the equity, but this is where the world is going anyway. And so it's either sort of adapt or die, adjust to this new reality or try to hold on to this past reality. And I kind of see that pattern with lots of things. Like in the 1990s, if you're a media organization and you hear about the web and you're like, anybody can publish to the web. Like I enjoy my privileged position on TV stations and having, you know, privileged distribution at newspaper stands. Like, why do I want to go on the web? If you had that mindset, you would have just died. You know, you kind of mm -hmm. had to adapt and say, okay, in the future, I'm going to have more competition. I'm going to have less power, but that's where the world is going and I have to go that way. So maybe as an investor, sort of getting on the crypto sort of Web3 decentralized train is the same sort of thought process. We're like accepting that this is just how things are going to be. Yeah, I, I would say a corollary to that is, yes, I, I definitely feel like this is the direction the world is headed. But B, I actually think this alternate way of building a platform through community ownership is potentially even more powerful. And the end result is a network that grows to be much more valuable for everyone such that the pie expands. And so even if we end up with a smaller share of the pie, it could be worth right. just as much or more as it did in the old equity world because you're turning over ownership to users who are thereby much more incented to stick with the, the community, to take actions that are valuable, to see it grow more. And so the thesis, part of the thesis is like, ownership is going to enable networks that grow bigger faster than what was possible before. Right. Okay. And so if we come full circle to this idea of like, 
reconfiguring the relationship between capital and labor, this future that we're headed toward potentially is basically the labor, like the workforce, like just owning a much bigger share of these companies. And what does that like ultimately like accomplish? Does that mean that we have better, healthier companies? Does that mean that like there's like a more sort of income inequality and wealth distribution? Like what's what is it that makes this a noble goal, I guess? I think different people see different things in this, but what I personally see in this is the potential to solve income inequality, which is one of the most pressing issues of our time, I believe. So if you look at the reasons driving in income inequality and widening the wealth gap, it's because too few people are owners of assets that are appreciating in value. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They have no savings. They don't own assets like stocks or equity. They're not accredited investors, and so they're not privy to the same opportunities to invest as like this other rarefied tier of investors. And so people are falling behind, and then other people are able to amass ownership and get better access to like more attractive investment opportunities, and the wealth gap continues to widen. And so I think of crypto and the ownership economy idea as like this really powerful force pushing back against that, which right. ultimately creates a healthier society. Yeah, there's this, this term of uh, kind of idea of the rich get richer. And I think technology is like played into this so much, especially with the web, where it's like, you know, on one hand, you have this very empowering, like exciting story of like, just a small group of people can create so much value and wealth, you know, using code that can reach so many people. And it's like really inspiring. But then it's also like, well, doesn't that just mean like a lot of wealth is going to be concentrated in very few hands in the future, you know, when you don't need, you know, 10,000 yes. mom and pop stores, but you can actually just have like one e-commerce business that serves everything. And yes. so it's like this idea of the Matthew effect where, you know, essentially Absolutely. advantages yeah. accumulate. And like, right. it's almost as if crypto is like sort of an antidote, like, oh, we can have this technology that reaches everybody. And yet we can have another layer of technology that makes sure that like all of the wealth doesn't accumulate into just a few hands. Right. Yeah, I remember reading this analysis around the Facebook IPO years ago, which was studying like the revenue generated per employee at Facebook compared to, I, don't, I forgot, it was like some very traditional offline business, the revenue generated by some offline manufacturing business. And you could clearly see the distinction where like every Facebook employee had so much more leverage and generated so much more revenue. But then you think about that more and it's like, well, yeah, because they're leveraging the creations of this worldwide network of users who are contributing the content and making the network entertaining and attractive in the first place. So this whole generation of like multi-sided platforms and user-generated platforms, they have gotten to be really valuable with very few employees because there's this widespread network outside of the confines of the company that are also doing work for the company contributing to its value. If you think of the term user-generated content and all of these user-generated platforms, there's something insidious about that terminology. It's like this class of users who are generating the value and yet they're not owning anything. Yeah. So It's true. <laughs> I yeah, feel bad because like, I'm trying to do this with indie hackers. Like I want the indie hackers forum to be awesome. And then I like go away. I'm like, look at all these people making all these posts. I don't have to do anything. They're making the website great and I don't have to do anything. But like on one hand the other hand it's like maybe this is a little exploitative, you know? With indie hackers at least I don't generate any revenue. So like there isn't anything that I'm capturing in particular. But like I do think that there is like you know, a legitimate argument that these companies have found a way to leverage the work of so many people, but aren't necessarily, I guess, needing to compensate them for the work that they're doing due to network effects. Yeah, exactly. And even if they wanted to compensate them through giving them stock in Facebook or Uber or whatever, like the existing regulations just wouldn't facilitate that. Like there is no way to distribute value in mass to 3 billion users all around the world. You really need a digital way to distribute value, mm -hmm. i.e. crypto. Right. And so the other question this brings up is like, okay, well, you got crypto, you know, presumably like these future apps and platforms that take over the, the web are going to be based on tokens and anybody can buy a token. Whereas in the present day, like it's very hard to like 
invest in a company. You, you need access. You need to be sort of an angel investor. You need to be sort of connected. You need wealth. There's literally laws about being an accredited investor. So you've got to have like a million dollars in net worth to be even like trusted or allowed by the government to be an investor, which is kind of crappy. But there's an argument to be made that like, well, when you open up tokens and it's this huge digital casino, people are just going to like lose money in mass. People are like, you know, buying, what was that, the Squid Game coin that came out and was like a huge scam. Like, people aren't necessarily sophisticated. People don't necessarily know what's worth investing in and what's not worth investing in. And so, like, perhaps we're just creating a world where sort of disadvantaged people just get taken advantage of even more and, you know, miss out. And the people who already have the advantages and the connections still win because they're just making sort of, I don't want to say unfair decisions, but like better decisions through better access and through better connections, et cetera which I think is a real downside. So like the question in my mind is like, does this downside, you know, is it worth the good? You know, are we really fighting against this sort of inequality or are we just sort of exacerbating it and giving the people who already have the advantages even more ways to win? I I just don't agree with the patronizing nature of investor protection laws. You don't know what to do with your money. (laughs) Exactly. Like the fact that only accredited investors could invest in our fund or in a startup. Mm Mm-hmm. That's just absurd that there's some dollar cutoff beyond which you're sophisticated enough to know what you're doing and below which, like, you're dumb, like, go you're, invest yeah. in the stock market. You don't care. Like, yeah, like, go invest in a mutual fund, which gives you 2% return year over year. I, I think that's just so unfair. And it's this pretense that's being used to lock people out of financial gains. It's really protectionist for the upper class of individuals who want the best investment opportunities for themselves. Agreed. That's what it is, plain and yeah. simple. And so this whole like people who are leveraging the charge that like crypto is going to cause so many retail investors to lose their money because I mean, the undertone of that is that they're not smart enough to do their own research. It's usually coming from people who are really wealthy and probably have an incentive to protect those opportunities for themselves. Yeah. Again, like this is a sort of analogous to like media companies of the 90s. You know, people were saying, oh, the Internet, anybody can write and publish anything. And we can't trust, can't trust people to go find real information there. And this is being said by people who own like <laughs> these huge media corporations and have an incentive to people only read their stuff rather than allowing it to be democratized and allowing sort of everybody to play. So I agree. Yep. There's a, lot, a strong incentive to keep people out. I mean, I will grant there are definitely scams and stuff going mm-hmm. on, like with any nascent technology, it's being used by all sorts of actors for all sorts of different purposes. But it's no different from the early uses of the internet or for email for bad purposes. Like we've gotten those emails from people pretending to be Nigerian princes or whatever, where we have to send them money. And no one ever talked about regulating email. email. (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe they did. And I missed that. But the technology will be used how it's used. Like our job is to try and paint the picture for how it could be used for good. And I don't think we should be overly overbearing on people's lives. So let's talk about DAOs, D-A-O, a decentralized autonomous organization. I have sort of been doing a bit of crypto research. This is an area I haven't looked into quite as much as other things like NFTs and social tokens. What What exactly is a DAO and how do you see this sort of new type of organization playing into um, what we're talking about, sort of the businesses of the future, the organizations of the future, and like sort of, I guess, decreasing inequality and, and helping sort of owners and laborers kind of merge into one class. There's so many different types of DAOs. The term has almost become kind of meaningless because everything is a pending DAO to the end. I just tweeted about this over the weekend. Just because it calls itself a DAO doesn't mean it's actually a DAO. You're right but now back- a guest on the Indie Hackers <laughs> podcast DAO. <laughs> yes, exactly. Changing the name. Indie Hackers is a DAO. <laughs> All of my chat groups are DAOs. But okay, starting with basic definitions. So a decentralized autonomous organization. Essentially, I think of them as internet communities that share resources and are aligned towards a common goal or mission. And importantly, all of the members of the community are bonded through ownership in the community via tokens. There's a DAO native token that every member of the community holds that points them in the right direction and like aligns everyone's incentive, kind of like a digital cooperative. Just like in an offline cooperative, everyone was a member owner if they were a worker at the co-op. 
Similarly, in a DAO, all of the members are owners of the DAO token, which represents their ownership stake. And right now there's like hundreds, if not thousands of DAOs popping up, each with their own missions and goals that they're trying to do. We saw a constitution DAO, which pulled together capital to try and buy this copy of the constitution. There's other DAOs that are pulling together capital to invest in other types of assets like NFTs, almost kind of like mini VC funds, but going after crypto native assets. There's DAOs that are joining together and deciding to like build products and ship software together. An example of this is like PartyDAO, which built PartyBid, which is this tool that you use to buy NFTs with your friends. Others are just like social networks where people are vibing and hanging out and meeting friends. But the commonality between all of them is this layer of ownership through the DAO token, where all of the members in that group are owners in the community and get exposure to the upside that's generated. And so tying it back to our conversation about work, the model that has been pioneered by Silicon Valley over the last few decades is that you can use incentives to create a more successful company than would have been otherwise possible by giving your employees ownership in the company itself through stock option grants. Um, and so this has now become prevalent in Silicon Valley. Like every startup gives out equity grants to their employees. It's unheard of not to do that. And the idea, which I think is true, is that by giving them equity, your employees are that much more incentivized to see you succeed, to see the company that they're working for succeed, because that represents upside to them. And a DAO is very much similar to that, except that everyone who is contributing value in different ways can be an, a part owner of the DAO. And then there's this other added element, which is that outsiders can also speculate on the DAO's token and buy it, even if they're not really active members. So if I think, if I think like FWB, which is this social- Friends with Benefits. Um, yes, Friends with Benefits. The which most is famous like, DAO probably. Probably, yeah, one of the OG DAOs out there. Like if I'm just a passive investor and I think, oh, I think FWB is gonna be the future of social networking, then I can buy their token as a way to sort of invest in their future without even joining the group or talking to anyone or doing anything. And so what that means is like these communities have a way of bootstrapping themselves through speculation right. that wasn't really possible before for a cooperative. Yeah, it's super cool. I think like the speculation part of like the crypto sort of craze gets like criticized a lot, but it's actually a really good way to bootstrap stuff off the beginning. You have a lot of people who are like, I don't know, I think I could make money from this thing. And suddenly they put their money into it. And now this like nascent organization has way more power to get going really quickly than it would have, as you're saying, if it were like a traditional Silicon Valley company. And that's kind of the competitive advantage to starting a DAO. If you can sort of, I guess, market yourself well and generate a lot of excitement, you can get raise crazy amounts of money. Like what? how much money did like the Constitution DAO raise? Like 40 or $50 million in like weeks? Yeah. That's like unheard of for like a group of people to just get together and do. And I think speculation gets a bad rap. I'm actually a fan of speculation. I think it's a necessary component to technology development. I mean, my whole job is speculation. Like the entire venture capital industry is speculating. Like we expect to lose our money in a lot of cases, but for some of the companies to be successful and to generate a return, I think people are speculating with their careers by joining a startup as well. Like this notion of like betting on a future outcome is a critical element to attracting capital to certain causes. Right. So I think the other part of a DAO is that, like a lot of the DAOs that I've looked at, like they kind of have like a shared bank account. They're like, okay, this is our, like, you know, it might not even be like a traditional bank. And in many cases it's not. They're like, we don't want to like form an LLC and have a bank. Like we are this like almost magical entity on the internet that is not registered with any government entities. And our bank account is actually just like a crypto wallet. <laughs> We're all like, we have like maybe hundreds of millions of dollars worth of crypto. And I guess we use like smart contracts or technology to like vote on things as a collective that we're going to do with this money, which is just like crazy. It's like this like future internet business that governments don't even know how to regulate or like just it's just like anything goes. And like part of me wonders like, well, like, okay, the competitive advantage here is that you can raise this money really quickly from speculators who are excited about what you're doing. I put money into DAOs, for example, and I'm like, I don't really keep tabs on what they're doing. I just think like, I'm optimistic about this thing. Let me put some of my money in here. And then I kind of like delegate my votes to other people who I think 
will do a better job voting and who actually care. The downside is like, okay, doesn't this amount to running a business like almost by consensus? Like, can a business that needs to vote on all these major decisions really compete with uh, an organization that's got, you know, a clearly defined CEO and a board and people making sort of top-down decisions very quickly and very accountably? It's a it's a really great point. I think, first of all, what I'll say is that the playbook for running a decentralized organization is still being written. I think no one has really figured out how to take a huge community that's maybe hundreds or thousands of people and to make everyone clear on what they're supposed to be doing and what the valuable activities are like that. It's kind of like community management. Like no one really knows for sure what the playbook is and every community is different. And, and DAOs are similar to that where you're managing a huge base of people who could be contributors, i.e. like could be doing work on behalf of the DAO, but some of them are speculators and they don't want to do anything. And you have like a lot of diversity in that member base. So A, I think it's like still, still being figured out, but B, on the running a company by consensus point. So Right now, what's usually happening is that DAOs resemble, I think the future of DAO governance is going to converge on what we see in the cooperative world. So if you look at co-ops, worker-owned cooperatives, which are kind of like companies, but every employee is also an owner of the company. In the real world, the most successful co-ops in the world have management structures that are similar to centralized corporations. So the most successful co-op in the world is the Spanish co-op called Mondragon has a lot of different lines of businesses, but essentially they have different business lines that each have their own manager that reports up to essentially CEO who reports up to a board of directors. And so it's not that different from the day-to-day operations of a normal company. What is different is that those leaders get elected by the workers. And so there is this kind of democratic accountability of the leadership to the people who are working at the company. I think DAO governance is gonna look like that where it's not literally every single business decision goes up for a vote and every single person votes on it. It, it looks like a startup, but there is this accountability element. It makes a lot of sense. It's fun talking about this stuff. Like just like thinking about, okay, with these like crazy possibilities and like what the future might look like. It's like a very unexpected, uh, I don't want to say like re- renaissance, but just like sort of technological transformation of how things are working that like two years ago, like, you know, obviously crypto was still a big thing, but like, I hadn't heard of a DAO or an NFT or social tokens. You know, I didn't see the real applications and like how these things could supplant kind of the current organizations and means of investing, et cetera. But like now it's like pretty, pretty clear how if this all works out. The world could change and we could be in for very different things. I think there are some concrete sort of implications of that too. For example, the last time you came on the show, we were talking about this article you wrote about like the missing creator middle class which is kind of like we still have these like crazy power law distributions where on YouTube or Spotify or any sort of network, you know, there are creators making money, but it's like the top 1%. They're crushing it. They're taking home all the gains. And the vast majority of everybody else on these platforms who's trying to make a living, they're just broke. You know, they're not making a middle-class wage. And I've heard a lot of optimism in the crypto community that like basically Web3 is going to fix this. You know, we're going to have platforms that distribute more money to owners and that will mean that like the average artist can make a living or the average musician can make a living or the average writer can make a living instead of it all going to the top one to two percent. And I haven't yet seen a convincing reason why this is true. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. But I'm also not like that skeptical. I'm just curious. Like, do you think this is true? Do you think that like crypto is sort of a path toward it being, you know, much more likely that a creator can make a living on the Internet? I, I actually just published a Substack newsletter this morning outlining, you know, how crypto can be used to create a creator middle class. It's called the Web3 Renaissance. It's it was the article that someone responded to me saying, like, I'm I'm too optimistic and I wish I were <laughs> as optimistic as I am. But it does paint this optimistic vision of what is possible with crypto. And I talk about how crypto can introduce all of these new dynamics to make it possible for creators to be more successful than they were before. And I talk about how NFTs introduce the scarcity dimension, which fans really value. If they really care about you and love you, they care about the product that you create that's rare and they want to own that rare rare thing. It's just an element of human nature. We like to collect rare things. And so people are earning more through NFTs now than they would have through getting 
tens of millions of streams on their Spotify songs. There's also this added element of supporting a creator no longer just becomes an act of altruism, it becomes an act of investment. And people are much more willing to spend on things that benefit themselves than what benefits others. And so you're tapping into this new spending behavior that didn't really exist in the Web2 world. There was no such thing as investing in a creator in Web2. But now, like all of these NFTs and social tokens represent investment vehicles in addition to, to just showing your support. Then there was, I outlined the idea of eco, like programmable economic models where everyone in the chain of creation who contributed to collaborative work could potentially see the upside from that final content being successful. So today there's the issue on social media, which is that a lot of the attribution is missing. And so the creator who ends up being successful economically is usually the one who was successful in going viral with something, not necessarily the original creator of it. This has been a huge issue on TikTok where the initial person who invented a dance is usually not the person who did the dance and got all the views and gets all the brand sponsorships. But envision a world in which all those pieces of media are tokenized and transparent and you could build upon them. And that end product just bakes in all the royalty payments to everyone that came before. Right. So you can do this with NFTs and you can sort of like use the blockchain with any NFT to be like, who's the originator? And it can be programmed into that thing. Basically, any money made off this NFT, you can have some percentage goes to the original creator. Exactly. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then ultimately, I think the creator middle class is going to come about through this idea of platforms exiting to their community and turning over ownership to their community because a lot of the value before had been locked up in these platforms and it went to the shareholders, not to the actual people using the products. And so when that shifts, I think there becomes a lot more economic resources and assets that are controlled by creators and users. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think that means that we can have a world where, you know, I don't know how many artists are successful, but let's say there's a thousand artists you know, random number, it's obviously higher than that, who are very successful today, you know, just basically the sort of accumulation of everything you're talking about mean we can have a world where there's a million artists? Because I, I wonder, like, okay, yeah, it is it is possible, like, to make sure the originators of these things get, you know, paid royalties. And it is possible to, you know, to, like, leverage scarcity to make sure that, like, artists can make more money than, like, you know, having to beg Spotify for pennies on their streams. But also, like, doesn't the power law still exist? You know, won't most people just invest in like the top 1% of the most famous artists or creators? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because one of my portfolio company's mission statements is actually to let a million music artists live off their work. It's called Sound. It's a music NFT platform. So that is their express goal. So I think a million is possible. We can get there. But I think another element of it is perhaps not just letting nature take its course, but users and creators deciding collectively that actually we do want to do more to spread the wealth around. We don't want it to be that we're on this platform and five people get all of the earnings. We want it to be that there's universal creative income, that everyone who is producing work gets some guaranteed minimum monthly income, like hypothetically. In that world, you can more easily create the infrastructure to distribute that value and to create a universal creative income than what exists today. So I think part of it is like these new monetization models and new economic models that do make it more possible for people with fewer followers to be successful economically. But part of it is also going to come down to our choices that we make as users and as participants in society as to what the, the end distribution of wealth we want to see and live in is going to be like. And if we make choices such that we want a million mus musicians to be successful and to be able to live off of making music, then we can more easily do that now than before using this new technology. I think one of the things that's like very consistent about you is that you're not sort of just like, you know, blindly opportunistic. You're not like, I'm putting money into whatever works. You're much more like mission driven, like here's what I want to see happen in the world. Like I like the like you like the passion economy because it's like you want creators to benefit from and enjoy and flourish in their work. And even when it comes to like web three and crypto, you're not like, what's making the most money? You're more like, how do we reduce income inequality? And that's where you're sort of putting your money. 
And I think that this is something that a lot of founders can learn from. Because when you start a business, like, your business is not just a means of making money. Like, it actually has some impact. You know, if you're doing something, you're creating a product, people are using it, they're exchanging money from it. It's changing the world in some way, even if it's only a small way. And I think that people underestimate the degree to which, like, they can pick something that's, like, beneficial. They can, like, literally say, like, oh, I want the world to be literally better in this way and start a business that does that. And I, I guess, in my opinion, people are afraid to do that because they think it constrains them. They're like, well, it's already hard enough to be successful. Like, how can I have this other constraint as well to, like, make the world a better place? Like, I'm just struggling to make something that succeeds. So I guess my, my final question for you is, like, you know, if I'm an entrepreneur listening to this podcast and I'm like, you know, I really would like to make the world a better place, but I really primarily just want to be able to pay my own rent and income and not have to have a job. Like, is there a way for them to accomplish both without making making the journey much harder? There's a really funny quote from this business analyst or professor. I forgot who had this quote. I'll need to look it up afterwards. But he said, like, investment analysts think that companies make money. Companies don't make money. They make socks. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. I'm probably butchering it. But it was like, yeah, people who work in, like, Wall Street or investment firms, they think companies exist to make money. They don't. They're trying to make the product that they're making. So – In terms of words of advice for founders, I think it's more possible now than ever before in human history to do what you love and to go after the mission that you want to see in the world and for the outcome of that to be financial gain for yourself. Like I think that's almost guaranteed now because chances are there's going to be someone out there or a group of someones who see what you're doing and really value it and are willing to support it in different ways and give it a viable business model. Like that's the whole thesis of the passion economy is you can you can do what you love. You can just like put your skills and knowledge out there and there will be customers around the world, like at least like probably 100 people or 10 people, hopefully out of many billions who value that thing and are willing to pay for it. And that's all you need because you don't need that many people to buy your product or service in order to make a living. And so I think, yeah, I think founders should just allow themselves to be led from their hearts and to pursue the visions that they want and trust that the business model and economics will flow from that versus being too MBA-ish in their upfront analysis of opportunities. Lead with their heart and there's reason to be optimistic that that can work. Lee Jen, thanks a ton for coming back on the show. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about your investments and your ideas? Because you do, you're absolutely prolific. You're everywhere, <laughs> tweeting, blogging. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, people can follow along on Twitter. I'm Elgen18 on Twitter. My Substack is lee.substack.com. And then to find out more about the fund or to submit your pitch, we're at variant.fund. All right, thanks, Lee. Thanks so much. 